please stand for the reading of God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Now move over to Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 8. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the Ju rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. The word of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. May the Lord God be praised in all of the earth. To Pastor Gerald and to the elders and to all of you who are here today, good morning. It's so good to be among you today. Thank you, Pastor Gerald, for another opportunity to stand in your place in the pulpit for which you are responsible to serve the souls for which you must give an account. Thank you also, elders, for this opportunity. Thank you, Lisa, for carefully reading scripture in your public reading of scriptures each time. Thank you, Pam, also for singing and Brother Allen for that song. Thank you for all who are up here leading us to sing the songs that give praise to our great God. Um, I tried to follow Pastor Gerald like on last week, so I went over to his wardrobe and got an Advent tie so I could be like him. <laughs> Let's um, look to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Now, Father, for the sake of your name, among more than six billion people who are without Christ, especially in places where the name of Christ has never been breathed, where people are outside of Trans World Radio, where no missionary has landed, where there's no translation of scripture. For the sake of your name there and all over Chicagoland, would you magnify yourself in the preaching and the hearing and the obedience of your word today? Would you give grace to us to be full of zeal and courage and boldness in response to all you have done for us in Christ Jesus? May you pour out your spirit upon us in great measure, and may you use us as a part of a piece of all you're doing to reach Chicagoland for yourself, bring great revival across Chicagoland, all over Oak Park, all over River Forest, then Riverside and North Riverside and Cicero and Austin and Brookfield and Berwyn and everywhere else. Please, oh God, make us the instruments of your mercy and your peace. Now, God, make your word clear. May your spirit continue to prevail among us at this time. And may all praise, honor, and glory go to you. We give you thanks for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A favorite movie among you Christmas movie watchers is It's a Wonderful Life. James Stewart's George Bailey always makes sacrifices for everyone else's success. He saves the life of his brother, keeps a druggist from poisoning a child, marries the local maiden, and saves the savings and loan. But then his uncle loses the savings and loan deposit, and it falls into the hands of Potter. 
Potter now gets to watch the demise of George Bailey as he goes into a crisis of potential insignificance and defeat after making sacrifices of his own dreams so that life can go well for everyone else. Well, you know it ends well with Clarence jumping in the picture and standing up for George, and George finally seeing he has a good life, and Potter doesn't get to see George go to jail for failing to pay for his bank's revenues. We all gather at George's house with Mary and Lulubelle, sing old Lang Syne, and ring the bell for Clarence to get his wings. Done. Happily ever after. You love that story. We all wish we could have an outcome like George Bailey's. Like George Bailey, the church often finds herself to be in the vulnerable and insignificant position in society against forces in the world of much greater power, wealth, people, resources, and voices of influence. At one place on this spectrum might be a fledgling group of believers in a predominantly Muslim region that lives under the threat of radicalized Islam. At another place on this spectrum might be Chick-fil-A's Christian values being stood down in the UK by those against their belief in historic expression of the family and gender orientation. Somewhere on the spectrum are ministries being kicked off U.S. college campuses for sharing the gospel as a message of exclusivity rather than of plurality and diversity, or of four Wheaton College students being booted out of Millennial Park for sharing the gospel. Somewhere else on the vulnerability and insignificant spectrum, we might find you being pressured to tweak your worldview and values in order to be accepted by unbelieving family members, to gain a much-needed promotion, or to live in peace with your neighbors. Who stands up for the campus ministries, for Chick-fil-A, or the college students so that they are not dismissed from their places in society? Who takes up the cause for you when your small voice cannot break down a system, institution, or family from crushing you like a bug because of your unpopular mores, your archaic ethical standards, and your incessant talk about others' need to repent and turn to Christ for hope? Of course, we can always lawyer up like the Wheaton College students, and fight for our constitutional rights. But the entities opposing us are prepared to use negative public opinion, shaming, poor evaluations, the power of the state, and just plain old family dismissal in order to force us to quiet down our noise and assimilate, in order to make us simply dip on the face of Jesus, if you will, as Endo and Sorsese's silence would have us do. But never in looking for help will we think to look for someone of lesser significance as a source of help and hope and salvation. 
However, were you to ask the prophet Micah what to do when our place in society seems small and insignificant in comparison to all that the world throws at us, he would point you to his words to Israel when she faced the threat of siege at the hands of the far more powerful Assyria. He would say there and our only hope is to go look for a hero from the most insignificant clan in a very insignificant town and put all of our chips in on him. For he is the only one who will make you significant. Even as he himself went from being born in significance to becoming the ruler for us all. I think Micah has three things to say to us today. The first is this. Accept that we are insignificant and helpless by all worldly measures. Accept that we are insignificant and helpless by all worldly measures. Verse 1 says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. When our text opens in Micah 5, the prophet Micah is calling Israel to raise an army against the threat of King Sennacherib and his Assyrian forces on her border. The great and reigning world power, Assyria, is too great a foe for the city of Jerusalem to fend off. The country has too few troops to match the armies of Assyria as the taunt daughters of troops shows. They are like little girls standing before warriors when one compares the two armies. When the Assyrians break through, they will strike the king of Israel in his mouth with a rod meant for his body. As American believers, often it is hard to see the church institution as being insignificant in society. But that is a phenomena of our practice of freedom of religion and the massive place evangelicals have in our post-Christian society. Because we often are aligned with one political movement or another, being a voting bloc that can make or break a candidate's success, it seems that we have a very prominent place in the world, unlike small ancient Judah. However, when you really examine our moral influence in society and or depictions of believers made by the media, you can see that our voice is relatively small. Our place is not so strong that each one of us readily shares our faith. Instead, when we're going to share our faith, our first concern is how others might receive us, which reveals that we have concluded that might in society resides with them and not with us. But the fact that we are comparatively weak to influence opinion leaders and generational viewpoints or to have our values embraced wholesale is actually okay in one sense. We are not here to prove that we as a church are formidable foes economically, politically, educationally, or in the advancing of technological savvy. Our message 
is so offensive that there is no way that we should expect acceptance when so-called progressive ideas on love and partnership and intimacy, success, fairness, news, children, and spirituality, and the like exist as alternatives to the Christian story of humankind's accountability to a creator. Yet I also am certain of this. No one wakes up in here daily trying to figure out how to be less significant. You don't try to figure out how to be less significant to your peers or toward your family members, toward your colleagues, toward management above you or subordinates under you or to any of your classmates. We only seek after insignificance when we really don't want to be bothered by anybody else and we want to sneak away from class or work early without being seen. Then we want to be insignificant. If anything, most times, we, like everyone else in the world, wake up seeking greater significance. We seek greater significance wanting to be seen for who we really are, hoping we will be accepted with all of our insecurities, flaws, baggage, and unique circumstances, striving to be a better, happier, higher-achieving version of ourselves such that someone will recognize us maybe even for a year-end bonus. However, really, we are just like Judah. We are too small to withstand the threat at our doorstep that would dismiss our existence entirely. Our only hope must come from outside of us. Which brings us to number two. We have hope in a seemingly insignificant ruler. We have hope in a seemingly insignificant ruler. 5.2 says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephatha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Hebrew scholar Bruce Walkie observes that Bethlehem and his clan, um, Ephatha, are so insignificant that they are not even listed by the cartographer in the data of Judah recorded in Micah. They, they just skip over this little clan because it's not really important to record that they're even there. God, however, by passing his favorite city, Jerusalem, goes to the smaller Bethlehem. That would be the absolute last place to which one would look for help against the mighty Assyrians. It would be something like this. It would be as if Chicago had an overwhelming army coming against it, and God says, oh, they need some help. I will go to McCook and get some help to save the city. <laughs> now, most of us blink on 55 South and miss the McCook water tower and are not even sure if McCook is incorporated and has its own police force. Even right now, some of you are saying, I didn't know there was a place called McCook. Well, that's because you blinked on 55 South. You don't know it's right there. It does, by the way, have an incorporated town and it does have its own police force. But it does not have a battalion of tanks or a fleet of carriers or fighter jets. Yet, in contrast to the siege in verses 1 and 2, but you, he starts off in verse 2, helpless Bethlehem, too weak to raise up its own military defense, 
Too weak to protect her own governmental ruler and judge from a strike on the cheek by Assyria's commanders is going to yield for us a ruler. From this insignificant place, this ruler offers hope for significance for us for at least five reasons. First, this ruler is the new David. There is an implicit comparison to King David's beginnings by appealing to Bethlehem a factor. First Samuel 17:12 says, "Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse." David was from the same tribe, same town, same clan as the promised ruler. He was the insignificant son, the eighth son, and overlooked son by his father when the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's home to anoint the king of Israel. Yet David went on to be one of Israel's greatest kings and leaders, defeating many of Israel's greatest foes. With God's covenant promise to David in the background, the prophet Micah proclaims the greater David, the son of David, and says he is the answer to Judah's siege. Second, the ruler is coming for God. It is God who is raising up this person from this place of insignificance to be the ruler of Bethlehem. It says in verse 2, from you shall come forth for me. God says this is for me. The presence of this ruler means that God himself has jumped in to aid little Bethlehem. So Bethlehem will be insignificant no more. They will be exalted by God's election of them by grace to be the place that the Savior will be born. Third, the ruler is eternal. He is from ancient of days. He has seen his shares of battles, and he knows how to demote Egyptian pharaohs, Moabite rulers, and Philistine warlords. He knows how to dispose of their armies in the Red Sea, dismantle their weapons of war, and deliver his own people from under their oppressive advances. He is made of stuff from beyond the present world in which we are limited by our abilities to that period between our birth and our death. This ruler who is coming has no such limitations. Fourth, this ruler intends to rescue a remnant of Israel. Until the birth of this ruler, Micah says, Israel and Judah will be handed over to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans. But those who survive under the rule of those nations, this ruler will return to the people and to the land of Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And fifth, this ruler will shepherd his people with peace. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, Micah says, that is, in order to make God renowned and for all glory to go to God for the victory. The coming ruler will take up the mantle to protect God's flock and shepherd her with such strength from God that no invading threat or advancing force will take away the peace of his people. His people will have security and safety because this ruler will be a shepherd of peace. 
Now, with those five things in mind, we understand that when the chief priests and scribes turned to this passage in order to tell Herod where the king of the Jews would be born, we now know why Herod is scared. He should have been very scared. I understand why Herod responded with deception and eventually a scorched-the-earth policy toward Bethlehem's male children. For this prophecy does far more than announce Herod's days are numbered as king over the Jews. Just born under Herod's rule is the king of David's line, coming on behalf of God with eternal power in his hand, working with him. And he plans to deliver a remnant of Israel and shepherd them so they can live in peace. The moment this king is born, Judah goes from being nobody to somebody, from going from hopeless to hopeful, from oppressed to free, from insignificant to very significant. Their significance comes by grace to bring forth the king of the Jews from their very midst. Gone will be the day that Jerusalem's leaders cower to Roman rule. All of Rome's days are numbered as the world power prevailing over the people of Judah. When this ruler is born insignificantly in small Bethlehem, everything changes. We cannot let our nice nativity scenes fool us. God, the ancient of days, is the one who steps into that stable as the new king so that the captivity of his people will be done. Third, the king will make us significant with victory and holiness. The king will make us significant with victory and holiness. Verse 7 says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver." Verse 10 says, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. Judah faces two problems in verses 7 through the end. The first problem Judah faces is Assyria outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Assyria already has scattered the northern kingdom just a score of years before the siege of Sennacherib, as some of you remember from Calvin's women, Calvary's women Bible study through Isaiah. And others of you among us know by paying attention in your freshman Old Testament course. Certainly, Assyria will do the same to the southern kingdom of Judah if they have their way. But Micah foretells of the pervasive presence of a remnant of Judah dwelling as a singular tribe in the midst of the nations around them. They will be as ubiquitous as dew on the ground and as ferocious as a lion let loose among a flock of sheep when they face their enemy in battle. This 
is a very graphic picture of the defeat of Judah's enemies when the Messiah stands up for them. The imagery is that of a bloodbath in which Judah like a lion ripping apart and devouring sheep, decimates her foes. This is not a politically correct picture to speak about the future of the enemies of the ethnic remnant of Judah. And it is not a very politically correct way to speak about the defeat of even our own enemies. So let's just be frank here about the hypocrisy of political correctness when it comes to the wrath of God, okay? Young adult literature like The Golden Compass and movies like Oblivion and Avengers Endgame surely inform us that the prevailing thought in our world is that if people could do away with God, they would. If they could kill the very idea of God and his rule, Yea, even his very existence, they would. Their very hatred of Christian belief, their hatred of the story of the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the dead as our only hope, and all righteous living and ordering a society that flows from the work of Christ shows a hatred of God. People claim they do not believe in God and do not need God because they do not want God the King to step in and rule their lives. So let's not be naive about political correctness on the wrath of God. Instead, let us have biblical hope. Our hope is that Christ our King gives us his resurrection power presently by his Spirit so that we can endure the taunts of our detractors while returning love, kindness, goodwill, mercy, grace, and peace toward them. Through Christ, we live now to put God's love on display toward any who would use and abuse us, hate and curse us, and say evil against us. Such persons probably should be on our Christmas list. Well, how about this? On our Christmas card list. Can we do that much? Can they be on our Christmas card list? We pray for nothing but good blessings and mercy for them, for that is what God did for us when we were his enemies. But make no mistake, there is a day coming when Messiah returns and renewed Judah will crush renewed Assyria, and we, the church, will stand victorious in the strength of Christ over our haters. You do know that God will vindicate us. I have some people on my prayer list whose names bring me bad memories, very bad memories. For daily, I have to relive a portion of the pains they inflicted upon me, even as I cry out to the Lord to bless them and have mercy on them. And we have to cry out to the Lord to bless them and have mercy on them because Jesus told us to pray for them and bless them. Yet my pains find solace each morning 
as I remember that God will take care of my enemies one day and vindicate me before them. The king is the one who will make me significant before them with victory. Judah's second problem is their own sinfulness before God. Rather than trusting the Lord for victory, Judah has placed her hopes in the number of chariot riders she can send into battle and the strength of her fortifications to withstand her enemy's might when she should be trusting the Lord. She's trusting her own resources. Judah has turned to divination and fortune-telling for words of hope when she should be trusting the words of the law of God and heeding the word of God from the prophets. Judah has turned away from worship of God to worship of man-made idols, gods they have fashioned like Asherah poles, in order to prosper her in the present world. To all of this, the Lord through Micah sends another word of promise to Judah. In the same day that Messiah provides victory over Judah's enemies, he also is going to purge the godless filth out of Judah. The filth of trying to starve off insignificance in their own strength. They want to handle their own enemies. They want to make their own words of hope. And they want to fashion gods who will say and do what they want to do and who will allow Judah to live in this world without having to be holy. They want their enemies defeated. They just don't want to have to conform themselves to live like God would have them to live. It is easier then to trust fortified walls, divination, and idols than it is for us to wait on the Lord to fend for us. But the Lord says he will cut off and root out all such rebellion from among us. For he intends to make us victorious with a victory that will be accompanied by holiness. And one shall not come without the other. When Pastor Gerald introduced types of prophetic fulfillment last week, I first thought he was going to speak of Old Testament fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy versus First Advent fulfillment and Second Advent fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That is, it is the nature of biblical prophecy that God has spoken words in history toward his people's contemporary situation that has meaning to that situation or that of a near generation's situation. And or that same word has spoken to a situation in the life of a generation of God's people living at the time of the earthly life of Christ and the apostles of the early church. And or also that word is spoken to the realities for people of God at the time of Christ's return into this world as visible king and ruler over all. So there is Old Testament fulfillment of Old Testament words historically. There is, old, there is first advent fulfillment in Jesus' day of Old Testament words often read in the New Testament as the prophet so-and-so says or it was fulfilled. And then there is second advent fulfillment of prophecy when Christ returns. This prophecy in Micah 5 has all three types of fulfillment. In history, in Micah's day, Scripture and Assyrian history both record that Sennacherib turned away from Judah by the hand of God. It was an Old Testament fulfillment of some of these words. 
but Israel was not exalted above Assyria. A ruler was born in Bethlehem. That is a first advent fulfillment of some of these words, but Israel then was not exalted among the nations, as the latter verses show us. Yet there is a day coming when the world will see the king of Judah, who was struck on the cheek by Judah's enemies, beaten, spat upon, mocked, and scorned, taking upon himself the suffering that Judah and we deserve. There is a day coming when the shepherd of the remnant of Judah, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and had the authority to take his own life up again, the great shepherd of the sheep who was brought back from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant, there is a day when that shepherd of the remnant of Judah shall shepherd his people to execute vengeance upon the enemies of the people of Judah, upon every anti-Semitic voice that has ever, that has never repented and found Judah's shepherd, Jesus. In the meantime, this is what we should do while we wait for that shepherd. One. Do not measure the success of your life by the world's standards of success, or you will fight to maintain those standards at any cost and despair when you do not meet them. Let me repeat. Do not measure the success of your life by the world's standards of success, or you will fight to maintain those standards at any cost and despair when you do not meet them. It is one thing to have status, reputation, peace, Safety, education, acclamation, and adoration that is equivalent to your unbelieving peers and family members. Or even to have a different portfolio, marital status, or relationship to your adult children, different in that it does not appear to be as full as someone else's or all that you have hoped for. It is quite another thing to base your identity and success in those things. If they are measures of success, they are idols. Your significance is not found in them. Your significance is found in being loved by Jesus. Two, review the gospel story often, if not daily. The story of the gospel is that we are not significant in the eyes of God, for we are rebels to his will and are deserving of his greatest wrath. You who are sitting among us today and might be scoffing at the reality of prophetic words or the return of Christ, you will be the objects of the wrath of God if you do not place your faith in Christ today. I urge you to stop fighting against God and to place your faith in Christ our Savior today. For the good news is that Christ took the wrath of God in the place of sinners, in the place of you and I, and defeated death eternally for those who place their hopes in him. He then gives his righteousness to us so that now we can be significant to God in him. Third, Turn away from thoughts of present revenge upon your adversaries, even in its passive-aggressive forms. Focus instead on the things in your life that could make God adversarial towards you. I easily can point out the flaws 
of anyone else. We all do it. We're all very good at it. It's very easy to see um, that, that speck in somebody else there. And we've got this huge, you know, beam coming out of our own eye, Jesus says. It's very easy to see everyone else's flaws. The problem with that, though, is that when God comes in judgment, the meeting in his office will not be a group meeting, but it will be one-on-one. I will not get to say, but, but look at how much worse they are. Or, but look at how people treated me. I, I had to make the decisions that I made, God. Nope. I will only get to say, you were right. I did not obey you there. And I am deserving of death at your hand. And then I will turn and praise God for his mercy in Jesus. We have to turn away from all thoughts of personal vengeance. Well, we started off this by talking about it's a wonderful life. Truth be told, it's a wonderful life used to be my favorite Christmas story too. But you know what? Now I cannot stand that movie. <laughs> it is such nonsense. I just can't. I don't even want to watch it when it comes on anymore. We all know that in the real world, Potter usually wins, and we all wish that we could instead be in that old SNL skit where they push Potter out of his wheelchair. <laughs> we don't want It's a Wonderful Life. We want SNL. It's a Wonderful Life just is not how things happen in this life for the George Baileys of this world. Or is it? Right now, it is the potters of this world who have all the power, all the wealth, all the rule, all the significance. In love, we get to push him or them around in the wheelchair tenderly, obediently, joyfully, hopefully, but also many days sorrowfully and painfully. But there is a day coming when that king from the significant city of Bethlehem in Judah, shall exalt Bethlehem, Judah, and all his own above all the peoples of the earth. That shepherd is also the king who the Westminster Shorter Catechism says rules and defends us and defeats all of his and all of our enemies. King Jesus is the one who will go from insignificance in the eyes of the world to the most significant being on the earth and in all the universe. Waiting on him will no longer make you insignificant in the eyes of the world. When he comes, in that day, when he comes, you and I will be significant. And we will be safe and holy and pure. Made so by he who was born king of the Jews. Let us pray. Father, we bless your name for being all of our significance. We are nothing in and of ourselves. Sometimes pride deceives us. God, pull us back from that game of finding significance in words of encouragement that never seem to come from one parent or another, from finally achieving as much as another sibling, for finally having a financial situation that allows us to live 
where someone else we envy lives. From finally being awarded some medal for being an outstanding parent. Make us to find our significance in being forgiven of our sins, in being promised resurrected life, and in knowing the joy of our Savior. Be glorified in us, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.